1: Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast, where we speak with authors of music books, bios, history, criticism, cultural takes and everything in between. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is John M. Borak, the author of The Beatles 100, 100 Pivotal Moments in Beatles History. Welcome, John.
2: Oh, Steve. Thanks. It's great to be here.
1: First off, congratulations on your book. I imagine it's incredibly hard to offer up a new take on The Beatles, but I do think your book fills the bill.
2: Well, thank you. It was a long road to get it published, but I'm grateful that it's out there uh, in the world now. It's kind of like watching your child get born, and then, <laughs> you know, unlike a child, you, you hope people like the book. Everyone <laughs> likes children. Not everyone likes all the books, but I, I'm just grateful that people— uh, Seem to be enjoying it. And yeah, I did try to offer up a little bit of a different take because there are so many Beatles books out there, but I didn't really see any like this one, uh, which ranks the top 100 moments in Beatles history, not only musical, but other moments as well, and also looks at their solo careers as well as their career as a group.
1: Well, I have to step back because you did offer up just a a wonderful metaphor as your child, and uh, I absolutely loved the forward of your book, As my personal history sort of mirrors yours closely, give our listeners the dime version Beatles journey you had as a child, and then on up to the father of a child who is also a Beatles fan.
2: Wow. Well, I think I was five years old, maybe six years old, and uh, my dad bought me my first Beatles record. It was the All You Need Is Love and Baby, You're a Rich Man, 45. And from then on, my obsession just took off. You know, I didn't really start appreciating them until I was a teenager. And then of course I I had to work backwards because this was the mid seventies had to work backwards, you know, towards, you know, collecting all the original us albums and UK albums. But, you know, once I started doing that and listening to, uh, the music, I just became a huge fan of the music and the people and, and everything. It's been quite a journey, but you know, my, my dad sort of, uh, Began that journey for me by purchasing me all these Beatles records, even though he didn't really care for the group so much. He was more old school in that regard. But, you know, he sort of helped feed my obsession. And I'll be forever grateful to him for that.
1: And you did the same with your daughter, though, correct?
2: Yeah, both my kids are uh, Beatles fans. Uh, My daughter is going to be 24 and she has seen Paul McCartney with me in concert, I think four times now hmm. and we will be going for number five here in Los Angeles in May uh, at SoFi stadium. Wow. And my son also enjoys the Beatles, not quite to the extent that my daughter does, but he likes the group too. You know, He's got some Beatles posters I've uh, given him hanging in his room. I came home one day and heard this, um, heard the sound of Blackbird you know, <laughs> coming from his room, a little acoustic guitar. And I'm like, wow, he's listening to Blackbird. And I went into his bedroom and he was actually playing it oh, wow. on his acoustic guitar. And I said, How did you how did you learn that? And of course his answer was, like a lot of young people, oh, it's on the internet. <laughs> yeah. I just learned how to learn learned how to, you know, play it by watching YouTube. So yeah, it's it's great to be able to share that passion that I have with my kids and particularly with my daughter, which is what I talk about in the foreword, where we saw Paul McCartney's final concert of his last tour which was at Dodger Stadium, and Ringo Starr came out on stage. Yeah. I get chills just talking about amazing. it. Ringo Starr came out on stage, and my daughter and I were both there. We all hope people start to cry. And oh, it was just an amazing moment. Amazing.
1: Well, I saw Paul with my daughter at Fenway Park here in Boston. And uh, it's a weird thing to say, but I'm proud to say now that she has seen him more than I have. So oh, that's I great. did my job, I think. That's great. Yeah. Let me ask you this. How did you come up with the concept of this book? Because there's a lot of historical books on the Beatles, but this is one person's list and one person's perspective in that order.
2: Well, I've always been a list maker. You know, I write for Goldmine Magazine, a record collector's publication. I'm a contributing editor there. And every year I would, uh, you know, make my top 20 list of uh, of albums of the year and put it up there. Uh, I've written a couple of books on the topic of power pop. And, you know, one was the top 200 power pop albums ranked in order. And you know, for better or worse, people love lists. They like to uh, agree with them or disagree with them, uh, but it always sparks a lot of discussion. So I thought, well, why not combine my love for list making with my love for the Beatles? I don't think anyone's ever approached things from this angle before. So that's how the uh, the idea came came to be. I could have done a hundred moments on the Beatles as a group, just as it was, but I thought, why not include the solo years and make right. it sort of all encompassing? And that's sort of uh, that's sort of how it, how it came to pass.
1: Well, it's genius. And and I'll mention to our listeners um, to that end, there's a great quote on the inside flap that states that you have, quote, created a book to agree with and disagree with. So everyone read this and dig in because it's it's really wired that way. And that's really part of the fun of it.
2: Yeah, you know, it was the publisher who came up with that uh, line, a book to agree with and disagree with. But that, But that's exactly what it is, mm-hmm. you know. No one is going to read the Beatles 100 and agree with all of the rankings. Uh, you know, I've, I've done interviews where I spent a good portion of the interviews trying to defend yeah. <laughs> my, my ranking of, of certain items here. And how could you put that ahead of that? And how could you put that ahead of that? And, you know, it's one person's list, like you said. And if I were to make this list again now, it would probably be a lot different. I know it would be a lot different. It would have been different if I would have made it. You know, one day after I sent the manuscript in, just because things change, feelings change and but you know it's it's just supposed to be in good fun, you know it's it's not supposed to be here's what the top one hundred moments are, I'm right, you're wrong, and this is it. <laughs> it's something to
1: kind of have a discussion about and and that's what uh, what makes it sort of fun for me and it's like the perfect Friday night at the local pub with your music buddies and just going back and forth and You know, one of the things that makes this so much fun is the brevity of each moment. They're only a few pages long, so it's really a compelling and easy read. And I'm curious, was that intentional?
2: Well, it was. uh, If I would have gone too long with 100 moments, the the book as it is, is 200 and some pages. I would have, you know, ended up with (laughs) a nine-volume work here. I I thought it was good to sort of keep it brief and to the point. What I tried to do was make this a book that a casual Beatles fan or someone who was, on, who was really not aware of the group so much in their history, they would enjoy it. But I also tried to make it interesting for people who are longtime fans of the Beatles or the solo Beatles. And one way I tried to do that was by including some quotes that you don't see all the time. And that involved doing a lot of research online, reading a lot of other Beatles books, you know, watching videos uh, of John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harris, and Ringo Starr being interviewed. You know, there's some great interviews on YouTube that people might not be aware of. For example, you know, John Lennon talking about the tracks on Abbey Road one by one and hmm. giving his own personal take on all of them. You know, not a lot of people are aware that that's out there. If you're, you know, a, a casual to, you know, middling Beatles fan, Similar thing, there's an interview with Paul McCartney, a radio interview that he did in 1968 after the White Album came out, where he discusses all of the tracks on the White Album. So, you know, I, I tried to dig a little deeper and not only offer my perspective, but give people some quotes and information they might not see all the time.
1: That's one of my favorite parts of your book, because the quotes set it up really well, and, and from different angles, different levels, whether you agree with you know, what that particular moment is or not. I thought the quotes just added so, so much, and I look forward to getting to the next quote. So. You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. We're speaking with John M. Borak. He's the author of The Beatles 100, 100 Pivotal Moments in Beatles History. So let me ask you, well, actually two million-dollar questions. I was going to say the million-dollar questions, but there's two of them. <laughs> so the first one is, what and how was your process in deciding what moments to include?
2: Well, some were relatively easy. Obviously, the probably the top 20 were ones that you would imagine would would be included, you know. John Lennon meeting Paul McCartney, The Beatles coming to America, uh, Ringo Starr joining the band, that sort of thing. In terms of some of the other things, it was just things I thought were were interesting about the band, um, relationships, marriages, certain singles being released, certain solo records being released. You know, every solo record is not covered in there, but. I think the more the more compelling ones are and the ones that I feel are interesting from a historical perspective, like Ram, for example, Paul Linda McCartney's album Ram got ravaged by the critics when it was originally released in 1971, even Ringo Starr. And I think this quote might even be in the chapter. I'm not sure. But he said, "I, I don't hear a single tune on there. Wow. Which is is more, uh, you know, speaks more to Ringo's relationship with Paul at the time than it does to the music that was included on Ram. But look at some of the uh, records from more of a historical perspective and talk about those. You know, I just started making the list and then, you know, changing the list, putting it in order and then reordering it and then re-reordering it back and forth and back and forth. And, you know, a lot of them were obvious. Some are not so obvious, but I tried to just give an overall perspective of the band and the solo Beatles.
1: Yeah. And that was my second million dollar question. And you answered that uh, with how, how you ordered it. But it, I have to ask, like, did you wait to order it until you had all hundred or did you do it as you go along and then kind of mix it up? I know it was pretty fluid.
2: No, I waited until I had all 100 moments and then put them in order. I, I knew what number one was going to
1: be. And that was,
2: <laughs> and I knew what number 100 was going to be. which is kind of funny.
1: We'll talk about those. (laughs) So let me just ask you this then. Was coming up with 100 moments easier than you thought or harder? I mean, that's, you know, it doesn't sound like a big number, but it is.
2: Well, you know, it wasn't difficult coming up with 100 moments because I probably could have come up with another 100. Mm. I could probably write a sequel, you know, (laughs) 100 more pivotal moments. But it was more ordering things, uh, you know, putting things in order and and just deciding, well, is this more important than that or is this more important than that? And then when you get to around, you know, well, is 35 more important than 36 or is 38 (laughs) more important than 40? It it, it all sort of kind of runs together a little bit. But, you know, it was just a matter of getting those moments I wanted to write about that I thought were important and then putting them in some semblance of what I felt the importance was uh, in the history of the band.
1: And it's really important to point out that it is not a uh, continuum or you know a narrative you know in time. It, it's all over the place. Right. It's the moment that you focus on, not when it happened.
2: Right. It, it is not in chronological order, and I mention that in every interview I do. I mention that every time I speak to somebody. It's mentioned in all the publicity and press for the book, and I still have people said why is it not in order? Well, it's, it's not supposed to be in order. If you want a biography of the band, there's a million of those out there by people who are far more accomplished than I am. You know, there was no need to reinvent the wheel, as it were. So I, I just wanted to offer a little, you know, bit of a different perspective. And I think that's what I did.
1: A straight up your perspective, too, which is really interesting. And you mentioned a couple of the chapters. Number one, as you mentioned, was pretty obvious. Yeah,
2: number one, uh, I don't feel I'm going to be spoiling things too much, but number (laughs) one was when John Lennon met Paul McCartney. There would be no Beatles. You know, we wouldn't even be having this discussion. Uh, There would be no book if John hadn't met Paul. That's what sort of kicked everything off. The interesting thing I found in some of my research was that everyone assumes they met for the first time in summer of 1957 when um, John and his group, the Quarrymen, were playing in Woolton uh, on this. outdoor sort of mobile stage but looking back I've, I've found some quotes from mark lewison who's a noted oh, yeah. beatles historian saying that you know they might have met earlier john and paul might have met earlier and even exchanged a few words you know a year previous in a uh, fish and chip shop or something but yeah that was that was the big one that's where it all began and then of course paul brought george into the group and then a few years later ringo joined and then we were off to the races
1: off indeed. And it, so is it fair to say my persp- or my gut reaction was that chapter two kind of set up everything that follows just because of the size and the uh, effect that the Beatles had?
2: Yeah, the, and chapter two talks about um, the Beatles coming to America, which sort of kicked off worldwide Beatlemania. I mean, they were obviously already pretty popular in the UK and in Europe uh, throughout 1963. They had had some big hits. They had released their first full-length album already. You know, 1964 is where it really all began on a worldwide level where, you know, Beatlemania first began and things just kind of ramped up and went to a whole nother level of amazing, you know, just some amazing times. I wish I would have been there.
1: Yeah, no kidding. So you mentioned number 100, and I have to say, I did not see this coming at all. <laughs> and when I read the title, I was like, what? And when I read it, it was just so perfect. Can you explain that?
2: Yeah, uh, chapter 100 was about the uh, Beatles parody act called The Ruttles, and hmm. um, it's, it's just, a, it's a, you know, for, for those of your listeners who aren't familiar, it, there was a movie released, uh, it was produced by one of the uh, guys, I think, who had something to do with Saturday Night Live back in the 70s. I think it was on TV originally, television mo- movie called All You Need Is Cash, hmm. which of course is a takeoff on All You Need Is Love. The Ruddles just parodied the Beatles' history. They were parodied so perfectly in that movie. And then there was, of course, a soundtrack album where the songs were very close to, you know, some Beatles songs, but just a little bit different. Mm-hmm. So as, you know, you know, you, you wouldn't say, oh, that's exactly the same as this certain Beatles song. But, uh, you know, there were some members of, of Monty Python involved. Uh, George Harrison was a big Monty Python fan. He actually went on to produce some Monty Python films in the uh, 80s. Eric Idle was involved from Monty Python. George was a big fan of, of the Ruttles and of the movie. He actually appears in the movie. Mm. So, you know, that sort of uh, gave it his blessing. And um, yeah, I, I just thought it was kind of a fun way to, uh, to wrap things up.
1: Definitely. And I think Harrison also said at some point that he, that's what he loved about it, because there's no more to say about the Beatles. So the Ruddles was kind of this, just a, a perfect ending. And, and it really is, you know, it really is.
2: Yeah, yeah, it, it was, it was just sort of, you know, hey, we're, we're human, and we can be lampooned. Also, hmm. we're not these gods that are untouchable, you know, let people make fun of us, you know, it's fine. And the music, you know, really, really good stuff there.
1: Pretty damn close. And, you know, you know, being made fun of sometimes makes you more lovable as well. So uh, it was a great ending. And uh, you know, I want to talk about a couple of uh, chapters. I don't want to give too much away, but there are a hundred of them. There are actually two of ones that appear early on, and they are about John. And they are both earth-shaking. Mm. Can you talk about those and specifically the order they appear and why you thought that was the order?
2: Well... You know, John meeting Yoko, uh, let me see, I think that's chapter 10. That was important in not only the history of the Beatles, but, you know, John is a solo act. Right. You know, Yoko affected everything he did from being there sitting on the amp when they were recording uh, the Let It Be record, constantly being by his side to sort of, you know, letting him go to L.A. where he uh, had his, uh, quote unquote, lost weekend uh, in 1973 to getting back together. And, and, you know, of course they, they had Sean in 1975 and then the comeback album, double fantasy. in in 1980, you know, Yoko is a constant presence. Right. And, you know, she, I think she gets kind of a bad rap from a lot of Beatles fans, honestly, mm-hmm. but, you know, my perspective was John loved her. She brought out a lot of good in him and, you know, who is anyone to say that's right or wrong. It's his own personal Choice on what he wanted to do in terms of a relationship, and but I think it was definitely important to the uh, overall history of not only the, the band, but John as a solo musician. Uh, of course, the other chapter you you mentioned, and I I have a policy never to mention um, John's assassin by name, just because he doesn't deserve any notoriety at all. That chapter, of course, that was the end of so many things not only the end of, of course, of of John's life, sadly, but, you know, the end of an era, the end of a chapter, you know, the Beatles could never regroup, you know, really with all four of them. Again, you know, I'm getting chills just talking about this. It was just such a sad time. And I remember when it happened and it was like someone punching you in the gut if, if you were a Beatles fan or just, you know, even as a human being for someone to be so senselessly taken away like that, so randomly. It was, it was awful. Again, though, I, I feel I did have to cover it because it was a huge part of the Beatles story.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I will say I remember that as well. And uh, I think that was my freshman year at college. And finding out from Howard Cosell uh, was not a lot of fun. Uh, I think that he announced that to a lot of people.
2: He did. And that's how I found out about it. I was mm-hmm. watching the football game, you know, and I was in college first year in college you know writing a paper for my sociology class you know it's one of those things where people remember where they were when they heard about these things exactly yeah i remember i was sitting at my kitchen table and i heard cosell announce the news and i thought well this must be some kind of a mistake or and at first he just said he was shot so i thought well hopefully he'll you know he'll, he'll be okay and then you know it was just so surreal hearing it that way and from howard cosell who Incidentally, had interviewed John Lennon on a number of occasions and and spoken to him, uh, you know, once John and Yoko moved to New York. But yeah, it was just a very, very, very sad day.
1: You know, and to be fair to John and Yoko, Paul's relationship with Linda figures prominently as well, as does George's doomed relationship with Patty Boyd. I do have to say, if I'm going to single out one line in your book that made me laugh out loud— I'd probably have to go with George's husband-in-law statement.
2: Oh. <laughs>
1: it was just hysterical.
2: Yeah, you know, that was a whole nother, uh, that was a whole nother thing. I, I think there's a chapter in there where I talk about George and Patty and Eric Clapton, and it was just a bizarre situation. You know, how often do you see that sort of thing happening where, you know, someone leaves a super famous, you know, husband and, and then ends up with another super— famous husband who's in the same exact industry and the two are friends and they play the same instrument and they've recorded together and you know later on they would tour together uh yeah it was a strange situation particularly when you know on one of george's solo albums in the uh 70s he uh, recorded a version of, of bye bye love the everly brothers song and changed the lyrics to talk about his relationship with patty and eric clapton you know, I think it was probably more uncomfortable for everyone else than it was for
1: him. Wow. I did not know that. I'm going to have to go listen to that one.
2: Honestly, it's a really lousy version of, mm-hmm. <laughs> of, of the song. He slows it down and sort of twists the melody around. And I think I, I actually have the lyrics here. Uh, oh, yeah. And, and, you know, instead of There Goes My Baby with someone new, which is how it starts, George sings There Goes Our Lady with You Know Who. I <laughs> hope she's happy. Old Clapper, too. And then it, he ends with, then she stepped in, did me a favor, I threw them both out. Wow! <laughs> and, you know, you listen to that and you're just, TMI there, George, I, I don't know.
1: Mm. The husband-in-law statement came after Patty married Clapton, and, and he said, I guess I'm the husband-in-law, which is dark and funny yeah. at the same time.
2: Yeah, and, you know, and, and that was George. He had sort of a wicked sense of humor mm. and, and found humor in a lot of things that where other people might not have. Uh, might not have.
1: We're speaking with John M. Borak, the author of The Beatles 100, 100 Pivotal Moments in Beatles History. So Let It Be gets two chapters, one for the fractious sessions and one for the release of Let It Be Naked, which stripped out Phil Spector's strings. Your book actually was released in 2021 and mentions the upcoming film, although that film would be delayed due to covid I'm assuming you've seen the film. I'm, I'm just wondering, did that affect or change or give you different thoughts as to your two chapters here? Well,
2: you know, at first, I thought, like everyone else did, you know, the, the narrative was the Beatles were in a horrible state uh, during the recording of Let It Be. They all hated each other. George walked out and John was arguing with Paul. John was on drugs and Paul was being... Uh, the dominant one, and no one else liked that, and it was just miserable. And if you watch the Let It Be movie, it sort of plays into that narrative, the original movie.
1: The original, right?
2: It's such a stark-looking movie. It's it's difficult to watch, honestly, if you're a Beatles fan and remember the good days and, and the happy times. So I was a bit worried when the new Get Back movie came out because that sort of flipped the narrative completely on its side. And No, they weren't arguing. They were happy. Look, here they are. Here they are smiling and laughing and joking and you know John Lennon is, is making all these uh clips and and everyone's having a great time. And at first I thought, wow, that's really gonna, you know, make me seem dumb saying how these sessions were, you know, everyone was really uptight. And then I thought, you know what? Honestly, like with most things, the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle. I don't think they were as miserable as you know they were made out to be but in the new get back film i don't think things were as hunky dory and rosy as as peter jackson made it out to be as someone who's worked in television editing can completely you know change the story right right and so you you can include what you want to include and take out what you don't want people to see and you know peter jackson is is a filmmaker and i'm sure that somebody told him you know when he went in we don't want to see the original Let It Be movie. We want to see some happy stuff. You know, this thing aired on Disney Plus, for God's sake. So, right. you know, we didn't want to see all the, all this negative uh, all this negative crap and all this fighting and, and, and everything else. We wanted to see some good times. And it was good to see that. So I don't think it really changes my opinion so much of what went on during that time. There were some good times. There, there were some bad times. Uh, but overall, the music is what, is paramount to the story, I think. Um, and the music still sounds great.
1: Yeah, definitely. And that's a really interesting point about editing and changing the narrative. And that, that first version of the movie, which was so dark, it's amazing. A lot of people are just adamant you know, that Let It Be was their last record. They don't realize that Abbey Road came after that, which sounds so fun and happy, you know?
2: After Abbey Road, there's interviews out there with both John and George where they talk about the next record. So, you know, hmm. there was no thought while they were making Abbey Road that this is it, guys. Right. You know, they they didn't know it was it. You know, they thought they were going to continue. You know, George had talked about, you know, making solo records, but, you know, still remaining a member of the Beatles and doing what he did with the four of them. So, yeah, it wasn't planned, you know, months, years in advance. It, it just sort of happened. And, you know, everyone is looking, looking for things to, uh, you know, point fingers at. Well, this led to this and this led to this and this led to this. Right, well, right. you know, it, it, it may have all happened that way eventually, but I don't think it was all planned, you know, years in advance.
1: There's so many fun and fascinating events in the book, and it's it's just a great book to pick up and put down. And like you just said, it's almost like a breadcrumbs on a trail because these are so short that get you thinking about the Beatles and all these really important points and if that's not enough too you have favorite solo track lists at the end and those are a ton of fun and again i'm sure you know at the corner bar whatever you have people coming up and telling you pick the wrong tracks
2: oh of course yeah how could you not pick x you know how could you not pick this because it's my favorite track well i'm glad it's your favorite track it's it's not my favorite track you know but whatever but yeah, I did a list of uh, my 10 favorite. You know, I made sure not to call it the 10 best. Right. My 10 favorite Beatles songs, you know, five sort of under the radar John Lennon solo tracks, Ringo's top 10 solo tracks, George's, and then Paul McCartney's. And a lot of people would be surprised at my number one there because everyone or most people sort of point to maybe I'm amazed as Paul's pinnacle. And of course, it is a great song, mm-hmm. classic song. And it was number four in my top 10. But my number one McCartney solo track is Junior's Farm. And if you had to ask me why, I couldn't really put my finger on why. I've just always loved it. It's not completely overplayed like a lot of Paul's other solo tracks that you hear all the time. It's got some great guitar work. It's got some really bizarre and sort of cheeky lyrics. And it's it rocks like hell. And it's always been my favorite.
1: It's definitely a good one. You also wrote another book, John Lennon, Life is What Happens. Yeah. Tell us real quickly about that one.
2: Okay, well, that came out in uh, 2010. That was to coincide with what would have been John's 70th birthday and also the 30th anniversary of his unfortunate assassination. That was a sort of a biography, but it was subtitled Music, Memories, and Memorabilia. Hmm. So I talked a lot about the music John had created with the Beatles and solo. Talked to a lot of, of different people, some who were musicians who were influenced by him. Some were musicians who worked with him. I talked to a couple of the double fantasy session musicians and some who just loved his music. For example, this is kind of bizarre, but I talked to Susan Olson, who played Cindy Brady on The Brady Bunch, <laughs> <That> <laughs> you know, just as an example of, of someone who loved the Beatles. And, you know, you wouldn't think about it, obviously, but so that was the uh, memories part of the equation. It was published by the same company that uh, at the time that owned Goldmine Magazine. They dealt with a lot of memorabilia publications. So there's a lot of photos of rare memorabilia uh, down through the years, lunchboxes and thermoses and picture sleeves and albums and, and whatnot. That came out in 2010. That was the first book I wrote about the Beatles and um, a lot of fun to do.
1: Some of the birth of merch even uh, with the Beatles. And, 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 you know, if you think about the Beatles and the Brady Bunch, uh, that was a good slice of history for a lot of kids' time, you know?
2: Oh, well, you know, I, I grew up watching the Brady Bunch and then, you know, things always kind of turn full circle in, in life. Now I play drums in in a lot of bands. Uh, One of them is actually a Beatles cover band called Let It Be. And I get to fulfill my my Ringo fantasy. So I get to go up there and play Beatles songs and just grin like mad because I just love doing it. I'm also in a band called The Test Pressings. One of the folks in that band along with me is a gentleman named Robbie Rist. And Robbie played Cousin Oliver oh, wow. on the last season of The Brady Bunch.
1: I remember him well.
2: <laughs> All kind of ties in full circle. He's a super talented singer, songwriter. So, yeah, so that band is me and Robbie and a young lady named Karen Bassett, who was in a band called The Pandoras back in the 80s.
1: Well, listen, speaking of tying things together, last question. We've uh, talked to one of the authors, and we're going to be speaking to his co-author of a book on Power Pop. And I know that you know those two authors well as well. So although the Beatles are certainly foundational, there's a lot of dissension amongst Power Poppers, if you can consider the Beatles actually Power Pop. What say you?
2: Uh, No, the, the Beatles were not a Power Pop band. The Beatles served as one of the blueprints for Power Pop, certainly. You know, Peter Townsend coined the term in 1966, Peter Townsend of The Who, uh, in an interview, you know, power pop is what we play. That's what he said. And of course, The Who back then were, were doing songs like Substitute and and songs that had a lot of really forceful guitar and harmonies. And, and you know, a lot of stuff that the Beatles did, um, you know, if it were to be done today, it would certainly be called power pop tracks like Anytime at All and Please Please Me and on and on and on. Yeah, they were sort of the uh, forerunners of of power pop. Bands like the three Bs that people talk about from the 60s, the Beatles, the Beach Boys, and the Birds. You know, you put influences from all those bands together, especially in their early years, particularly, and you sort of get the formula for power pop. Three-minute songs, lots of jangly guitar, lots of vocal harmonies. That's sort of what it is, but... It's funny because I'm sure when you talk to uh, talk to the folks who wrote the book, they'll they'll uh, mention to you about power pop, how people argue about is this band power pop, is this <laughs> band not power pop, and one of the funnier ones is is there some people who insist that the band Kiss is power. All oh, right,
1: right, that's a good story too.
2: They may they may be powerful and they may be pop music, but they're not power pop. <laughs> It's a whole different thing.
1: That seems to, to be right on the money. Listen, I want to thank you for joining us, John M. Borak, The Beatles 100, 100 Pivotal Moments in Beatles History. It's a great read. It's a brand-new book, just out for a few months, and, you know, I would recommend it to everybody. It's it's a really fun, short read. You know, you can put it down, pick it up, and uh, congratulations.
2: Thank you. I appreciate you having me, and, you know, I love talking about the Beatles whenever I can, so this has really been a treat.
1: If you would like to buy this book, please go to allmusicbooks.com and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our Deep Dive podcasts there as well and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I'd also like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. You can check him out at fullsound.com. Finally, big ups to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout the podcasts. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all of the major streaming services. Please support local and independent writers and musicians. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an allmusicbooks.com podcast and now a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network.